Good morning. Welcome to the teaching hour at Community Bible Chapel. Uh, we know this is a unique situation, and uh, we want to address uh, the book of Job in the next three lessons to talk about the ways in which the book of Job may be instructive for us as we experience personally the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. You may wonder exactly how Job uh, relates to that. It's a book that talks about the far, ago, uh, far away and the long ago, uh, but I think you'll see, if you, if you reflect on it for a moment, that Job's experiences are very similar to ours. For example, when you look at uh, the world in which we live today, all around the globe, people are losing their jobs, losing their wealth, losing their financial security. Job lost it all. And there are people who have lost family members and are grieving over loved ones who have died because of this pandemic. Job lost all of his children. And there are people who have the virus who are enduring great physical affliction. Uh, Job endured physical affliction as well, right up to the point of death. So whatever we're experiencing today, Job has experienced in full measure in his lifetime. And this book of Job is given to us to instruct us as to how we may deal with things like those which Job dealt with in his life. I want to do this, if I can, in three messages. Uh, I know that's an ambitious task, but I'd like to do this message focusing on chapters 1 and 2, and then next week in chapters 3 through 37, and finally in the third week, uh, chapters 38 through 42. I think it would be good for us to, to take a, a moment to look at the overall uh, layout of the book so that we see where our particular section of Scripture, chapters 1 and 2, uh, fit into the overall message of the book. Chapters 1 and 2 of Job really set the stage. Uh, rather than being an earthly focus, this is a heavenly focus. We are uh, transported, as it were, into the heavenlies uh, to uh, observe and to witness a conversation that will take place between uh, God and Satan and focusing on the godly life of this man, Job. But what we see here is what is unseen to Job and would be unseen to anyone else apart from this divine revelation of this experience. But it sets the stage uh, for all of the rest of the book, uh, and I think we'll see that as this message uh, goes on. So you see uh, God summoning the angelic host, and among them is Satan, and God calls attention to his servant Job who is faithful. Uh, Satan is not willing to accept that at face value. He challenges uh, the, the basis for Job's faithfulness, and he proposes a test. Take away his wealth and his family and external blessings, and he will no longer be faithful. 
when Job passes that test, then in chapter two, Satan changes the proposal to taking away Job's health. And you know, at the end of chapter two, Job's faith remains firm, even in the midst of a great health crisis. Chapters 3 through 37, I kind of go downhill quickly. Uh, Job begins to whine. Uh, he, he, the, the, the initial uh, uh, purity of his faith and whatever seems to erode a bit. And, and while he has not lost his faith, he has begun to complain. And his friends see that as their uh, opening for speaking words of correction. So from this point on in chapter four, his friends are going to point out what they perceive to be the problem, which is Job's sin, and to uh, urge him to repent and uh, change his deeds so that God may again return to blessing. And then chapters 38 through 42 are the kind of concluding section that begins with God speaking for the first time to Job uh, and really straightens him out. And Job repents, and then the book ends with Job's material blessings uh, returning to him. But in this message, I want to focus on four main topics. I'd like to begin by focusing your attention on Job himself, then on Satan, then on the angelic host, and finally on the mystery that is apparent uh, in these first two chapters. So think with me about Job. Job is an amazing man. In verse 1 of chapter 1, the author says he is pure, he is upright, he fears God, and he turns from evil. And if that isn't enough, in verse 8, God seconds that by the same assessment of Job's spiritual life, pure, upright, fearing God, turning from evil. And that isn't just the assessment of this book. It is the assessment that we find elsewhere in the scriptures. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 14, three men are cited as stellar believers. Uh, those who might uh, plead and petition for God's dealing with Israel. Noah, Daniel, Job. But God says, not any of those men, in spite of their personal uh, righteousness, is going to change his purposes and plans for Israel. In James chapter 5 in the New Testament, James cites Job as a prime example of endurance in the midst of adversity. So Job is seen throughout scripture as a great and godly man. Uh, he's great and godly as a parent. And by the way, this, this is a, not so common in the scriptures. When you think of the great men of the Old Testament, you don't immediately think about great fathers because many of them were not. But Job was a godly father. Uh, and and the, it, verses 2 through 5 spell that out. Job had 10 children, seven sons, three daughters. And it's apparent from what uh, the book tells us 
that his sons must have lived the good life. I guess with all that money and all those servants, it wasn't necessary for his boys to go break a sweat out in the fields. And so uh, the book tells us about the frequent banquets uh, that are that are uh, observed by the sons. Uh, they rotate these from home to home, and the sons invite their brothers and their sisters to come and partake in that. And it's evident that Job himself has some misgivings about what might take place in the context of the banquet. And we know that that, that is always at least uh, a, a danger. So Job is concerned with the spiritual lives of his children. And when they uh, have a banquet, uh, Job follows up with that. Uh, and he goes about in the, uh, in the presence of his children to purify them or sanctify them. In other words, to make sure that the outcome of that banquet uh, produces growth in their spiritual walk rather than greater distance. And then it says that he offers burnt offering. He offers a sin offering for his children, and he does so based upon the fact that he assumes something less than pleasing to God could have taken place. And so Job is very intent with regard to the spiritual well-being of his children, and you see this, this consistent diligence on his part as it relates to uh, the purity and the sanctification of his own children. Now, what we, of course, normally tend to think of is Job's wealth. And, and you have to sort of think about this by translating that, at least I do, translating it into more current uh, terms. So you have uh, 7,000 sheep. And I guess I would think about that in terms of wool. And that's a whole lot of wool. That's a lot of wealth. 3,000 camels. Now, I have to say, if I had a camel in the backyard, I think it would be viewed as a liability, not as an asset. But in that part of the world, think about camels as long haulers. Think about the caravans, for instance, that we read about with Joseph being taken down to Egypt. Camels were those animals on which a heavy load could be placed and they could go long distances. So in the trucking world, they would be thought of as long haulers. A lot of business can be done with 3,000 camels. There are 500 yoke of oxen. Now, if you think of a yoke of oxen as a tractor, think about a man who has 500 tractors who is able to cultivate and till the land. That's incredible uh, assets and incredible wealth that is implied. 500 female donkeys, okay, I think of those as the FedEx delivery trucks. They're the short haulers, but still you have a, a huge amount of wealth. And while it doesn't name the number of servants, it certainly tells us that in addition to all of these uh, material goods, he had many, many servants to serve and take care of him and to work his fields and to earn money. So Job is a very, very wealthy man. As we'll see later in the book, it's more apparent 
that he is a man who has great status and influence within his community. He is called in verse 3 of chapter 1, the greatest of all men in the East. That's, that's a pretty strong statement. So here's a man who was the greatest in the East and also the most righteous man on the face of the earth. That's an incredible set of credentials for this man, Job. And God cited Job because he was the best that could be produced. Now let's look for a moment at Satan, the adversary. We know Satan's bio from other places in the Bible, but let's remind ourselves. Satan is no friend. He is no friend of man, and he is no friend of God. We find him in Genesis chapter 3 as the ringleader in the, the, the temptation of Eve and, and the, the fall of mankind. In Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, we read of fallen angels who are intermarrying with the daughters of men and producing this corrupt race. Satan's fingerprints are all over that. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1, we find Satan tempting David to number Israel. Now, God has his purposes for that. He wants to discipline Israel, but his hand is there in what may have appeared to be merely a whim on David's part. Satan is there. In Zechariah chapter 3, Satan accuses Joshua the priest of pointing to his sin, and there again, his role as the accuser is obvious. When you come to the New Testament, Satan is consistent with who he is and what he does. Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 4, he is there tempting our Lord, uh, seeking to turn him from his God-given mission. John chapter 13, verses 23 through 20, uh, 25 through 27, he enters into Judas, who then goes out and brings about the betrayal of our Lord Jesus to those who would kill him. In Acts chapter 5, we meet Satan again, who fills the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira. They give a gift, but they lie about the amount uh, and deceive to make themselves look more spiritual than they are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about Satan's schemes and why it is so dangerous for the church not to forgive a repentant sinner. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about Satan as one who disguises himself as an angel of light, and his messengers are those who actually proclaim that they are apostles, but are seeking to lead the church astray. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18, Satan hindered Paul's team from reaching the Thessalonians on various occasions. And in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, he is the roaring lion who goes about seeking to devour whom he may. And obviously in the book of Revelation, uh, Satan becomes, becomes prominent in the great final struggle uh, between Satan and his followers and God. Now, I want to focus on Satan's, call them, travels, because I think that the translations don't always do us justice on that. If you read, for example, in the New American Standard, in Job chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, 
from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. In my days, that would have been probably called cruising. And, and there are lots of times when, when uh, people, young people especially, uh, drive around, not to be at any specific place, but just to be cruising around. That is not what is happening with Satan uh, in his venture on earth. I really like the New Living Translation's rendering of Job 1-7, because I think it captures the essence of what's going on. It says, where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that is going on. Now, I think about that, you know, when you think about, for instance, uh, a security officer and the president's a security uh, group as they accompany him. You watch their faces. They are watching carefully everything that's going on. They have a careful plan that they are following out. What they do is not random. And what Satan is doing on the earth is not random either. So for instance, you see that same expression used in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 2. And it's where David is ordering his military leaders to go out and number the troops of Israel. Uh, and that is not a random act. We're going through a census in our country. And the effort is to be sure that no one is overlooked, that everyone is covered in that census. That's not a random roaming of census takers. It is a very purposeful, planned, uh, strategic thing. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, we read this. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro, same expression, throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That's a very purposeful uh, observation that is going on and seeking. It is not, again, a random or mindless thing. So I think of it, frankly, like uh, the, the spies that Joshua sent to spy out the land. They are not just cruising around. They are seeking data and, and whatever so that they may, when they attack, do so wisely. Now, look at Satan's accusations as you find them in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. God has called attention to, to Job, his righteous servant. And, and now notice, it is not a humble response on Satan's part. But look what he says. Is it for nothing that Job fears God? Have you not made a hedge around him and his household and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his livestock have increased in the land. But extend your hand and strike everything he has, and he will no doubt curse you to your face. Job is, is, is following that up. I, I'm sorry, the book of Job follows that up in chapter 2. Because when the material blessings are taken away from Job and he remains faithful, God again calls Job to Satan's attention. And when he does so, Satan responds with these words. Skin for skin, indeed, a man will give up all that he has to save his life. But extend your hand and strike his bone and his flesh, and he will no doubt curse you to your face. Sadly, 
That was the counsel that Job's wife gave to her husband as well. But these are the two temptations. Take away the material blessings, the prosperity that you've given to him, and then take away his health, and he will not be a faithful servant. It will undermine his faith. Now, I want you to stop and think about what the accuser is saying about God and about Job. This is a real slap in the face. It's not only arrogantly stated, but it, but it is an offense to both Job and to God. I think about what it says about Job. Job follows God, but, but not out of devotion. He does so out of self-interest. It is not because of who God is, but about what God gives. In other words, God is the welfare state, and, and Job is willing to go God's way as long as God greases his palm, so to speak, with the bribery of material prosperity. Now, think about what Satan's accusation is, says about God. It basically says to God, nobody follows you for who you are. It, it, it says nothing about who you're, what your worth is as a person, but rather people follow you because you have to pay them to do so. And I think about that in contrast to the appearance of our Lord in the Gospels when he calls his disciples. He does not call them to a life of ease. He does not call them to a life of prosperity. In fact, when he calls disciples, he says to them, take up your cross and follow me. So when, when the disciples chose to follow Jesus, it wasn't because they thought he was going to line their pockets. Uh, that may have been true for Judas, but it wouldn't be true for the others. There was something about Jesus that drew men to follow him and to cling to him uh, that didn't have some form of bribery attached. So here are the tests. Chapter 1, take away Job's material blessings and his family. Chapter 2, take away Job's health. But I want you to notice that when God grants Satan permission uh, to do the things that he does to inflict suffering on Job, there are always limits. Job has to have God's permission to remove Job's material blessings. But he says, take those away. Do not touch Job. Then he says, you may take away Job's health, but you may not take away his life. Satan is always within the boundaries of what God stipulates to be the boundaries. You know, as I think about this, it, it takes my mind back to the Garden of Eden. Because I think Satan tends to resort to those things which he thinks are successful and effective. And in his mind, uh, Genesis 3 and the fall of man was a big success, uh, a, a big selling point in his resume. But think about what he's really doing here. What he's saying is, to God is, take away the good things that you've given to Job. And when he does that, then Satan is going to revert to his same tactic that he had in Genesis 3. He says uh, to, to Eve, uh, in effect, God is not good. 
because he gave you this tree to look at, but not to eat, and in her mind, not even to touch. And, and so God is basically saying, God is not good because he withholds something good. If you want the good that God withholds, you must disobey God and seek it for yourself. So here's Satan saying to God, take away the good, because when you take away the good, I'll play that out to say, you're not really a good God at all. That, I believe, was at the back of Satan's mind. Now, follow with me, if you would, for a minute, to what I call Satan's peers, or I would call them the angelic host. I have to say to you that for most of my life, as I've read the book of Job many times, heard the story many times, I always thought of chapters one and two as a personal confrontation between God and Satan. And I did not see the broader context at all of what was taking place. But look at what we read in Job 1, verse 6. Now, the day came when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan also arrived among them. In other words, Satan was one of many who presented themselves before the Lord, not just a solo, one-on-one -on -one conversation. And then it says again in chapter 2, verse 1, Again the day came when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also arrived among them to present himself before the Lord. So as I see this, when men are uh, angels are presenting themselves before the Lord, it's like a, an inspection in the military. Or in the, in the business world, it's like an annual review. Somehow, God is summoning this angelic celestial host to appear before him, either to, to be reviewed or to be given assignments, but it was not a, a merely individual meeting between our Lord and Satan. Uh, it was not a private one-on-one -on -one conversation, I, and I've, I've begun to think of it this way. It's sort of like a teacher who calls upon one student in the class to answer a question while the others watch. Now, I have to confess to you, some years ago, I was in a classroom situation, and the professor asked a question that a student volunteered to answer, but in the way that he responded, it was kind of arrogant and know-it-all, and of course this is so, and it was, it, it frankly was irritating for the rest of the class to hear. And I confess to my shame that there was a measure of satisfaction when the teacher took it on himself to dismantle this guy in front of the class. And so he presses him with questions. And rather than seeing where this was going, the guy keeps answering in a way that digs his hole deeper and deeper. But my point is, that it wasn't just the teacher and the student, it was the class that was engaged in this, and I must say, they were interested, and if I have to confess, they actually enjoyed what they saw. There's a measure of that, I think, in God's uh, dealing with Satan in the midst of this angelic host. Now, I should go on and be honest to say, 
the following class, uh, the professor apologized before the class to the student for taking him on in the way that he did. But what I'm trying to, to get across is, I don't think that these angels are somehow wandering about disinterested, letting this conversation go on between God and Satan. I think they're watching with the greatest of interest because they know Satan's hostility to God. They know that God is making a point and they've heard the challenge, the test. So I believe that as they listen to this, they really are looking with intense interest. What is God going to do with respect to Job? And what is Job going to do with respect to God if these things are actually allowed? So why this broader focus on this larger angelic group, as I've suggested, and I really think that's true and it's important. And, and I would say this, one, angels are often involved in the affairs of men. There are two worlds, the celestial angelic world, the upper world, and the lower world, but angels are, are often involved in what's taking place in the world. For example, when you look at 2 Kings chapter 6, here's Elisha, and, and uh, he is telling the king of Israel the battle plans that the king of Syria is doing in secret. And so every time the Syrian army comes to raid, the Israelites know exactly what they're going to do, and they avoid the confrontation. And the king of Syria basically says to his troops, one of you guys is, is a traitor and you're ratting us out. And someone says, no, king, it's Elisha. Elisha knows what the king is saying in his private room, and he is conveying that. So the king sends out a large armed force to go get rid of Elisha. In the morning when Elisha and his servant get up, the servant goes outside and he sees this huge army surrounding them and he thinks their history. And Elisha prays and God opens the servant's eyes to see this heavenly host that is greater than any earthly host. And you remember God spares them uh, dramatically. God has angels that are often on the scene, but not seen. In Daniel chapters nine through 12, you have angels like Gabriel and Michael. But one of the things that's interesting about this particular uh, set of chapters in Daniel is that somehow the earthly affairs that are going on, the things that are going on with men, have some heavenly counterpart. So there is like an upper and a lower story to what God is doing. And angels are very much of, uh, uh, involved, whether that is faithful angels or fallen angels. Uh, angels are involved in the affairs of men. And then, of course, in the book of Revelation, you see angels uh, prominently used in the, in the outworking of God's fulfillment and completion of his purposes. Here's another thing to keep in mind. We know that angels have rebelled from God, and we suspect that others will follow. So that in Jude chapter 1, verse 6, 
It talks about angels who have not kept their former estate and are now in bondage. My own understanding is that that's a reference to the angelic beings uh, that were cohabiting with the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. But whatever it is, there were angels who chose to rebel and now have been confined because of their rebellion. It looks to me from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4 that there's going to come a time when other angels, for whatever reason, choose to side with Satan and to join with him in rebelling against God. And I think what God is showing them is that's not a good way to go. So God is demonstrating the fallacy of Satan and his arguments. Finally, God is instructing the angels and the celestial powers. There are probably many places that we could go, but think about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. There, Peter talks about the salvation that the prophets had foretold, but they even looked at their own writings to try and figure out what those writings meant. And he says, the angels are now looking, as it were, stooping over the rail of heaven to look down on earth to see the way in which God is fulfilling his prophecies and promises re related to uh, the salvation of men. Angels are looking and learning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, Paul's talking about the conduct and demeanor of women in the context of the church and its worship. And he says that women ought to have a sign of authority on their heads because of the angels. So it seems to me that the angelic host is again watching what's happening in the church. They know that's the place where something significant is happening. And as they watch women embracing whatever role God has given them in that context, then they are learning about submission, I think, to God's authority. And finally, probably a major text is that in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Now you see Paul describing his mission along with that of his fellow apostles of explaining the, the mystery that God has had through the centuries, and that is just revealed, that being the joining together of Jews and Gentiles, Israel and, and, and uh, Gentile believers, into one new man, the church, so that Jews and Gentiles no longer have the wall of hostility and division, but they are being built up into one temple. And that he calls uh, a, a, a mystery. And he says he has been given the privilege of revealing that. And he, he presents the celestial beings as that heavenly audience that are lo that's looking on as God instructs them through the affairs of the church. Now, I think it's safe to say that we will not expect Satan to learn and repent but I believe that other angels might. And, and so when I look at this, I don't see God uh, turning his attention to Satan and saying, well, this will finally straighten him out. Uh, it won't. And God knows that far, far better than we. But we do see this verse in Proverbs 19.25. 
flog a scorner, and as a result, the simpleton will learn prudence. And I think what it's saying in, in general uh, translation, strike the scoffer and the simple will learn. The scoffer does not learn when he is rebuked, but those who are looking on do. And I think that's what's taking place in Job 1 and 2. In fact, the whole book of Job, God is dealing with Satan who won't repent or turn, but other angelic beings and mankind are looking on and some will learn. Now let's talk finally about this fourth element, which I call the mystery, what Job didn't know. What we read in Job 1 and 2 is given for us, the readers, to understand what is taking place throughout the rest of the book. But it's also clear that what we read in Job 1 and 2 is not known to Job. Job is unaware of this celestial element, this heavenly dimension to his earthly story. And indeed, he can't know, because if he did know, it wouldn't be a valid test of his faith. So what God is doing is putting Job in a circumstance that is painful and is without explanation to prove that Job will remain true to his faith in God, uh, but not based upon the material blessings that God bestows. So let's think about what all this says to us by way of conclusion. I have to say, we wish the story would end here at the end of Job chapter 2. Job's faith triumphs and, and over his afflictions, and, and you want to almost say, and they all lived happily ever after. But that's not what happens. Uh, beginning at chapter 3 and through chapter 37 that we'll talk about next week, much more will come. Chapter 3, Job will whine about his circumstances, and then his friends who come to comfort him uh, are going to see that as their invitation to begin to correct Job and to straighten him out by telling him he's sinning and needs to repent. So, it, 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 it's just the beginning of the story, not the end. But what we can learn from these two chapters, I think, is very pertinent to us in terms of our dealing with suffering in general, and because of where we are in time and history, to deal with the, uh, the pandemic that we're in right now in particular. So let's think about some lessons for us. Lesson number one, God is, uh, all suffering is under God's control. All suffering is under God's control. The suffering that Job experienced came about because God granted it and used it. It was a part of his purpose. But part of that control was to limit Satan. Satan could bring about suffering only within the boundaries that God himself had set. He could take away his possessions. He couldn't afflict Job, chapter 1. He could take away Job's health. He could not take away Job's life, uh, chapter 2. So we have to say, we also will go through affliction and suffering, and we will not know the reasons for our afflictions in most cases either. But we do know who is in charge. So even in the midst of our suffering and afflictions, 
what we can say to ourselves is God is in control. He is doing it for his glory. He is doing it for our good. And we must uh, respond to it in that way. Here's another point. God is involved in our lives and is in control even when it does not appear that he is. Now, that's the case with Job. From all appearances to Job, God doesn't even speak. He doesn't enter the scene until chapter 38. But it's evident to us from chapters 1 and 2 that even when it doesn't appear that God is in control, he is in absolute control. He is behind it all, and he is bringing about his purposes. Here's the third and very important point. Not all suffering is the direct result of sin, which is what Job's friends are going to suggest to him in short order. Job's suffering was not the result of his sin. It was the result of his righteousness. And I want you to notice that God picked the finest example of righteousness that was living on the face of the earth to bring suffering into his life. And I don't think it would have had the the impact uh, if anyone else had been chosen. So God chooses to allow suffering to come into the lives of the most righteous man on earth. And I have to say that my mind turns forward to the coming of Christ. It isn't just Job, because the pro he's the prototype for God using the suffering of the most righteous one of all in heaven and earth to bring about our good through his suffering. Notice from this text, all of Job, and texts like 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 7, our faith is purified in the midst of adversity. Adversity purifies our faith, as well as demonstrates it. It purifies our faith, and it, it brings out those things in us that are unseemly for believers. I think you have to agree as well. True faith is more evident in the midst of adversity than it is in the midst of prosperity. You, anybody can, can go along with God, so to speak, when, when all is coming up roses. In the midst of adversity, that's where true faith, I think, is most evident. Now, that's where we need, I think, to give some attention based upon the book of Job and on chapters 1 and 2, to the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel basically says, believe in God, follow God, and he'll bless your socks off. Isn't that really consistent with what Satan himself is saying? Is that people follow God because of the blessings that he gives. Uh, and that's just not right. So the prosperity gospel actually leads people astray. Is it any wonder then that there are some people who profess faith on the wrong basis and fall away, as it were, uh, because of difficulty? I mean by that they weren't really saved in the beginning. They, were, they, they believed in a gospel that wasn't really true. And then when they found out the essence of what the gospel is, they bail. Look at Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. As soon as they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves, and they do not endure. 
Then when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, immediately they fall away. I think that was true of Judas. Judas expected that following Jesus was going to gain him uh, probably wealth, power, whatever. And the reality is when he found out that wasn't so, he bailed. He never was a believer, but he, he ceased to even want to associate with the Lord Jesus. The other disciples probably had visions uh, of glory as well, but as they came to know Christ and the gospel, they embraced the suffering that he said would come with it. Folks, I hate to say it, but I think it's true that most of us have lived a Job-like life of prosperity. All right, we may not have as many camels or whatever, but the reality is we have lived well. And I think this is the time when God's going to take some of that away, and the test is, will we remain faithful or not? In other words, Satan and that angelic host that was looking down on Job and his response, I believe they're looking down on us as well. You remember, it says in, in Hebrews chapter 12, since therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us. I believe the celestial powers, as they did in Job's day, are looking down at the church today and they're asking the question, are men going to follow God, follow Christ, because of who he is, or are they going to leave him because he ceases to give them the things they believe that they deserve. Not only is that true, but unbelievers are watching as well. And I think they're looking to see, is our faith the kind of faith which really endures and really lasts? Finally, I think the book of Job is written to teach us how to follow God when life is falling apart. That takes us from chapter 3 and following. But I'd like to suggest these days are days when our faith should grow, when it should become apparent to those above and those around us, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, for the fact that he, being perfectly righteous, suffered for our sins and for our benefit as the celestial host looked on. Help us to learn from our affliction. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be witnesses. Help us to give glory to you, knowing that you are in control of our suffering and afflictions, and that in the end, it will bring about that fruit which you have ordained. In Jesus' name, amen.